and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for Baptist System. And I'm Amanda Comer, the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're real excited to have on Dr. H.F. Mason, a, a veteran of our other podcast channel, Connecting the Dots. Dr. Mason, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. I don't know about being a veteran, <laughs> but uh, have a little bit of experience, maybe. But well, no, no experience on this side. I've, I've, I've been on y'all's side many times. Yeah, so this yeah. is a little bit new territory for me. Yeah, we get to ask the tough questions on this one for sure. Absolutely. Well, for those rare individuals that don't listen to both podcasts, can you tell them a little bit about your your background? All right. As you said, I'm H.F. Mason. I am a general surgeon by, tra- by training. I um, grew up in North Mississippi and uh, went to Ole Miss, uh, hotty toddy, and went to medical school down in Jackson, did my training at Vanderbilt, and I practiced general surgery in uh, at Baptist Union County in New Albany for 23 years. Fifteen of those years, I was an independent physician in private practice, and then for the last eight, I, uh, I was a BMG general surgeon. And for the last two years at Union County, I was the chief medical officer. And as of this January, I've been the chief medical officer here at Baptist DeSoto in a full-time uh, admin role. So Mississippi is well represented on this podcast episode. It is. I mean, we've got, we've got, and especially North Mississippi, we've got uh, New Albany, Corinth, and of course, oh, I grew up in Madison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Jackson wouldn't claim me. I'm, I'm from Madison. <laughs> so Dr. Mason, tell us about your journey into physician leadership and continuous improvement. Sure. Um, shortly after I I joined BMG. I uh, I reached out to Dr. Swanson, and I just let him know that that I was really interested in in physician leadership and anything that he could do to uh, to help me. I, it would be you know I would very much appreciate it. And I I got involved with some BMG committees at that time. Dr. Dr. Sullivan he had a physician leadership series that he would do and. That was the first time I met Skip, and it was maybe six or seven years ago, and he used to have a, a series of meetings with physicians, and, and I don't know if you've heard about this, but he and I talked about it this morning where he, he would get us together, and he would have us, he gave us, I think it was a yard of yarn, maybe 20, 20 uh, spaghetti sticks and, and a marshmallow, and we had to, we had to build a tower. And, you know, and it was all about PDSA at that time. And of course, I, I knew very, very little about it. And and that's when he first gave us <clears throat> or we first got the book Managing to Learn. Uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that book about A3 thinking. And of course, at that time, it was just total Greek to me. I didn't understand any anything about it. And around the hospital, I started hearing these words like kata and A3 and things like that. And I just, the fact that I didn't know what they were talking about really, really bothered me. And so I just, I really started, started exploring it and, you know, finding out what, what it was all about. And sometime around that time, Dr. DePriest, he gave me a book called, uh, 
transforming medicine, and it was about the uh, about Virginia, the Virginia Mason Clinic's journey in out in Seattle, uh, their approach to uh, continuous improvement, and introduced me to the uh, Toyota production system, and and you know since it's just been a continuous you know learning process since then, still have a very long way to go. Oh, yeah. And if you read all the books that Skip and Dr. Priest give you, I mean, you'll be busy forever. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when I was going through medical school and residency, I'll be honest, I did not know what a chief medical officer was or did or, or what their role was and what they were supposed to do. Can you tell us just a little bit about the job? What are your roles and responsibilities and maybe what's the difference between that and a uh, chief of staff? which I think some people still get confused. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you that, you know, I'm still finding out what exactly a chief medical officer does. But on the on the executive team, the, the chief medical officer uh, really acts as a liaison, in my opinion, between administration and the medical staff, as well as well as the, uh, the, the employees and team members. And so when the medical staff wants something clinical or want something something for the administrative team to do i act as a liaison for the uh, medical staff and, and vice versa when the uh of, of course when we're trying to implement policy or, or or new things as an administrative team i act as a liaison uh to the uh to the physician the medical staff and uh you know there are other things that of course here at desoto the quality department reports to me uh, the case management and risk and and I know that's that's not how it is that's not how it is all over the system with every every CMO but uh, I I think acting as a physician liaison and you know focusing on quality and safety are, are the two main things that I do. And how does how do you distinguish between that and, and the chief of staff or like the, the medical staff? Well, the chief of staff is truly a representative of the medical staff. Uh, that's that's the main difference. And, and of course, I, I'm the physician representative of the the hospital and the administrative, administrative team, team. The administrative team, yes. So, has your role as CMO changed or evolved during the COVID nineteen pandemic? It, it it sure has. I mean, it, it seems like. Since I've been up here at DeSoto, the only thing that I've known is COVID. You know, I, ha- I haven't been up here when when there wasn't COVID, so I don't even really know what things are like. But it, it has changed, and and one thing that one thing that we found out during this pandemic is that we can, you, you know, I, I hope that when we look back, we can say we did a whole lot in a very short amount of time. We were able to to implement things and. There's been a whole lot of, you know, we, we were there were times when we were meeting daily with incident command or weekly at least or several times a week. And, you know, really being that messenger uh, from the administrative team out to the medical staff, um, you know, now that now that, uh, you know, the vaccine when the vaccine came out, trying to trying to help coordinate who's going to get vaccinated when and, 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 and for sure. The um, the role has changed. The agility and the communication has been incredible, though. 
It has. It, it really has. All right. Going back to just, uh, you know, some of the quality and safety that we we're talking about earlier, you know, can you tell us just what are some of the successes uh, that you've seen with with especially within surgery in those in those areas? In regards to I'm sorry, uh, just quality and safety in surgery and continuous improvement. Well, sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, right off, you know, off the top of my head, I would think about the surgical timeout. You know, that's something that that has taken place. Uh, within my career and you know unfortunately wrong site surgery happens and the you know the surgical timeout has I think it's definitely improved that and it's what it does it gives everybody in that room it gives them the uh, power to speak up because when when that we do root cause analysis on wrong site surgery you know if heaven forbid, if the, the wrong leg gets amputated, invariably when they're interviewing all the people involved, a surgical tech may say, you know what, I really thought we were supposed to do the other leg, but I was scared to, um, I was scared to speak up because I thought that the surgeon would yell at me. And I, I do think that just that culture change with the surg- uh, surgical timeout has, uh, has really affected, you know, those, those never events in, in a very positive way. And the, the, the surgical timeout, when, when that idea was first coming out, I mean, that was just widely accepted. Every surgeon said, that's a great idea. Let's do it now. <laughs> or, or was there any pushback? Oh, uh, there, there was, there was a lot of pushback because, you know, and, and as a surgeon, I can, I can say that, you know, we, we tend to, be a little arrogant and we say, well, that, that would, that could never happen to me. And, you know, I'm, and this is a waste of time. It's, it's, it's hokey. It, you know, we, we don't need it, but, uh, you know, I think eventually people, people have come around and, and, and it's, it's standard, uh, across all the ORs, uh, hopefully across the United States, but at least, uh, in the Baptist system. So I I have zero experience in surgery, but when I think of surgery, I think um, surgical services are ahead of many other service lines in that standardization and think of it almost as like a checklist manifesto, you know, where. Sure. So do you still see, are there barriers remaining in standardization and process? Well, sure. There, There are always, there are always barriers and, but, but you're right. I mean, surgery is is a great place to to work on continuous improvement because it it is so so process oriented you know for instance you know the surgical techs when they're pulling instruments you know i have a i i have a a a preference list you know i have preference cards and when i'm doing a gallbladder or whatnot you know the surgical tech uh, they can pull my my preference card and it's like a checklist they want to make make sure you know, that they have everything that I need. And, you know, um, of course, I mean, heaven forbid they would pull the wrong sutures for you. That's, you know, right. That, that, that's right. Yeah. And, and I, I knew, I knew we were going to, we were going to get to that, but, uh, we, you know, we, we, we have come such a long way. And, and because when I was in residency, it was so crazy because, you know, you may have 10 or 12 different attendings on the general surgery service 
and every single surgeon did something a little bit differently. And, and so depending on, depending on who you were scrubbing with, it depended yeah. on how you did things. And it was so confusing. And with, with one attending you, you put your rent, you, you know, he wanted you to put your fingers in the needle holder, mm-hmm. the other attending, he wanted you to palm the needle holder holder. It was, it was just so frustrating. So yeah, instead of managing the patient, you got to manage your attending. That's what you learn in residence. You know, that's that's a great way of putting it. I never I never <laughs> thought of that, but that that is true. Man, managing the attendings. So, how do we get there for other aspects of healthcare? Did it start with a checklist or? Well, you know, I I don't think it necessarily started with a checklist, but I do think that that we all need to be looking at at what we do at our job and we all need to be thinking you know how can how can i do this job better uh or you know as um as steven spear said who was on our on our podcast jake uh, a few months ago is you know we need to be asking ourselves what stinks about our job and i don't mean that in a bad way but what what do we see day in and day out that makes our job you know, more, more difficult to do. And, and, and we as, we as physician leaders, we need to be engaging, engaging everyone to, to, to be looking for those, um, those ways that we can, that we can improve. Yeah, no, I really liked when he, he was talking about, uh, taking away the stink in medicine. I think that was really good. Oh yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, one of the things that really helped me was, you know, we talk about we talk about value stream mapping, you know, and, and and we take a process from start to finish and we map it out. And and during those processes, there there are things that add value to to that patient experience or that customer. And there there are non value added things, for instance, um, you know, waiting in a waiting room. That is non-value added. That's not doing anything for that patient's experience. Some non-value added things are are, are necessary. We, they have to be done. Patients do have to fill out paperwork, you know, in order to so that we can get the accurate information on them. And 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 we used to think that we needed to focus on improving the value added steps. When really is what we need to be focusing on is getting rid of or reducing that 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 non-value added stuff. And and one one of the things that I I did when I was in New Albany is and it I, I hate waiting. I'm very impatient and, and I, I really really hated to make my patients He's wait. A surgeon. Yeah, <laughs> and, but but I really you know my patients who waited, I just I hated to keep them waiting. And one thing that I found out was that in my surgery schedule, depending on where you were in the schedule, depended on how long you waited. If you were the first or second case of the day, you had very short wait time. But if you were fifth or sixth or seventh, you you had to wait a long time. And, and one of the reasons why was because we had gotten into this mindset that you know, batching was good. You know, we wanted the nurses in outpatient surgery felt a lot more comfortable when they had all their patients there at seven o'clock in the morning 
They had mm-hmm. them sitting in outpatient surgery, just waiting and ready to go. And, and you know, one thing that we found out is batching is not good. And, and I know Jake may argue with me a little bit no. because <laughs> I know you and Dr. Lucini had a, had a pretty good uh, discussion about that. But <laughs> but, I, you know, and by the end of the day, you, you know, I may have a patient who had been waiting four hours to go back to the operating room. So me and the surgery, surgery director and the outpatient nurses, we started, we started looking at this and seeing what we could do. How can we take away, you know, this, this non-value added waiting? And, and one thing that we did was we, we leveraged Epic because in, in Epic, every time a surgeon does a, a case, like for instance, every time I do a, a gallbladder, it averages the time that it takes me to do a gallbladder. You know, my time may be different from Jake's time and it may be different from Amanda's time. You don't time. want to see my time for a gallbladder. <laughs> it's pretty abysmal. It, it would be very, very long, huh? But <laughs> but is what it would do, it, it would now our our OR turnaround times were pretty consistent. You know, they were they were right around twenty minutes every every day. So as as what we started we, we just started experimenting. We said, well you know, if my first case is supposed to take averages 50 minutes and we get our first patient to the hospital at 630 in the morning, well, our second patient should, shouldn't need to get to the hospital until 50 minutes after that. And, and that's kind of how we, we did. We staggered our patients coming in throughout the day. And of course, it, it created a lot of a lot of anxiety uh, with, with the outpatient uh, surgery nurses. And I, I, would, I would just say, let's let's just try it. If it doesn't work, we'll we'll, we'll go back. But lo and behold, it, it, it did. And and of course, we had a lot more patient satisfaction. And, and it was real interesting because the patients weren't going to surgery any earlier in the day. They were just able to wait at home before they came in. And there's a big difference between being at home waiting to come to the hospital and being in the hospital. Because once they hit the door, that that that, talk, that clock is ticking and they're, they're expecting something to happen. So, you know, I think that's one thing that we, you know, and you, you can... You know, you can look at these non-value-added steps as as waste, and some some of them may be wasteful. Some of them are essential, but that's the things that we really need to be focusing on is how to cut out the waste and and really and really shorten, get rid of all that non-value-added stuff. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Um, you know, one of the other things I don't think we've talked about it quite on the program yet, but I know Baptist is doing a good bit of it. And one of the other kind of more innovative things in surgery, or one of the trends, is is the ERAS protocols. Are, are you sure. familiar with that? Can you Ab- speak about it? A little absolutely. Bit? Uh, ERAS stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, and you know, it was initially applied to colorectal surgery primarily, and the thing. The big difference was was before the patient even gets to the operating room, doing things that's going to move them along quicker into their uh, getting them out of the hospital. Uh, it 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 reduces length of stay, it reduces pain, 
and we do have an ERAS protocol now, and and not not to get too much in the details, but but a lot of it involves um, you know preoperative uh, pain medication. You know your patients are getting you know we're giving our patients gabapentin in uh, outpatient surgery. We're giving them meloxicam or Celebrex. We're giving them Tylenol. We're we're getting that those things on board. Uh, before because we found out that, you know, if we can start blocking those pain receptors before an incision is even made, it greatly reduces uh, their, their need for post-operative uh, narcotics. And, and as we know, narcotics slow the gut down. They uh, prevent the patient from getting out of the bed as quickly. And, of course, they stay, you know, increases their complication rate and, and increases their length of stay. So, it involves, uh, like I said, preoperative uh, pain medication, preoperative uh, nutrient loading. You know, we give these patients uh, a, a clear protein drink before just to help prevent some of that catabolism that they get. So no uh, more NPO after midnight. No, well, you know, that's, you know, NPO up to, you know, maybe six hours before surgery, plus giving them giving them that, that clear protein drink. Um, you know, we're, we're minimizing their, their uh, intraoperative fluids. You know, they're getting a lot less fluid uh, in surgery than mm-hmm. they used to. We, uh, we're getting them out of bed, you know, post-op day zero. And uh, so, you know, getting their Foley catheter out and, 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 you know, having them chew gum because there's some studies out there to show that just that act of, of chewing gum uh, helps decrease post-operative ileus, mm. but uh, we're seeing some we're seeing some really good results. Our, our patients are going home uh, much much quicker. And I've, I've, in my own personal experience, you know, I would have patients who I'd done an open left hemicolectomy on, and they went home on zero narcotics and never took any intravenous narcotic while they were in the hospital. Wow. Yeah. It's it's exciting stuff. And, you know, it, it, we're also, you know, now we have in Epic, we have, uh, you know, preoperative and postoperative multimodal pain order sets. So these patients, you know, let's, you know, for our orthopedic cases, you know, the, giving them the pre-op uh, gabapentin, uh, Celebrex and, and Tylenol is, is really reducing, uh, reducing their postoperative narcotic use. That's exciting. So as you know, as the as hopefully we get further and further out from the pandemic, I know cases are still really high in our area right now, but I'm always optimistic. Um, what do you see as kind of your major focus areas uh, over the next couple of years? I think here at DeSoto, our major focus is going to be on quality. We do great work here. Our, our quality scorecard is not quite where we want it to be. And we've actually, uh, us and, and Memphis, we're partnering with Vizient, and, and we have a project called the, the National uh, Quality Scorecard Optimization Project, and we're going to be working really closely with them over the next three years to, to work on our, our processes, and, and, you know, they're really helping us strategically look at, at, at things that we want to work on. So I think I think quality, quality, quality yeah. is is what I'm going to be working on. Well, I know is uh, you know we're we're wrapping up. Um, 
but I really appreciate your time coming on today. I mean, you have any other you know, thoughts or comments for the, the medical staff out there? One thing that we want to do is, is, is the medical staff, we want to get them really engaged in, 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 the, in the improvement process. And I just want to encourage them that it's, it's a team effort. And for so many years, including myself, it, it, it always seemed like an us versus them type mentality where, you know, that the quality work, that's all for the, that's all for the hospital. That doesn't really, just, just let me, let me practice medicine. Uh, but, but no, it, it's a team effort and, and we all need to, uh, all need to get involved for sure. And also it's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it you know, it's, it, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. And, and, and I, I think that we all should be dedicating a little bit a little bit of our day, whether it's in our in our professional life or our, our personal life, to be getting a little just a little bit better every day. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks again for, for coming on the, the podcast. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. If you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this for CME credit. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed it.